Welcome to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. In this episode, we continue exploring the context of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Or, as our guest, political scientist Dr. Catherine Stoner clarifies, Putin's invasion. Stoner is the Mossbacher Director of the Center on Democracy, Development, and the Rule of Law at Stanford, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spoli Institute for International Studies, Political Scientist at Stanford, and Senior Fellow by Courtesy at the Hoover Institution. Stoner is also the author of Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. My interview with Dr. Stoner will be presented in two parts. This is part one, which focuses on Putin's version of a global order and his goals with regard to Ukraine, as well as an exploration of the balancing acts both Putin and NATO are engaging in as this conflict proceeds. Part two will air next week. going on now with Russia and Ukraine and, and, and a lot of the concern. And I think among people who are watching, confusion about response and what each response means. How are you seeing what's unfolding from a political perspective? From a human perspective, obviously, it's a, it's a tragedy. And that's very connected to the, the international political perspective in terms of what the rest of the, of the world does about this. In terms of um, the the sort of balance of power in international order, uh, well, Russia's been uh, trying to alter uh, the balance of power uh, in the in the post-Cold War international order for a while now. Um, and this is, in a sense, the, the apex uh, summit of their efforts. And they've been climbing to this for at least the last 20 or so years uh, under, under Vladimir Putin's presidency. I recently wrote a book called uh, Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. And so I think the relevant part of that is how has Russia been resurrected under Putin in the last 22 years? And what is the new global order that might be in his head? It's a multipolar world. It's not a unipolar world where the United States is um, unchallenged. Um, It is a world uh, almost of 19th century imperialism and and areas or spheres of influence. Um, And Ukraine, to get right to this current tragedy, is in this view of the world uh, within Russia's historical sphere of influence. And and Mr. Putin has given a a few speeches. He's written last summer, he wrote um, uh, an expository essay um, on Ukrainian-Russian history as he understands it, which is basically inseparable, uh, culturally, linguistically, religiously. The issue, of course, is that um, there are millions of Ukrainians, the population is 44 million, most of them would heartily disagree um, with that. And so here we here we are with uh, a war so that he can, you know, convince them that they are, should really be part of greater Russia, uh, as he believes they always have been inextricably linked historically, and that he is kind of gathering the lands as an ancient Tsar would, um, and reuniting Belarus and and Ukraine and you know the Russian Empire, not so much the Soviet Union. Um, and this makes Russia a, a great power in many ways in uh, Mr. Putin's mind and, and the mind of many of, of those around him as well. So you talk about in his, his, earlier you said this the new world order in his head and and he thinks he's a great power. 
from watching, it appears that the international community is treating him as such in some ways. I mean, and maybe part of that is the nuclear equation. Um, but there, there's been this, oh, we have to handle him slightly with kid gloves. Is Putin, is Russia still a great power in our current context? Or is this a question we should be rethinking? I want to separate Putin and Russia. Because uh, Putin is not Russia, Russia is not Putin, but he certainly tries to fuse the two and pretty successfully, right? So, so it's not just him, of course, right? Um, there are there are many people within Russia who still believe, uh, and I actually cite this in the book, that Russia is is a great power, and in many ways, it all depends, right, on what you think of as a, as a great power. But if you think of it in nuclear terms, and certainly that's a big part of it. Russia is the only other country on Earth other than the United States that has, you know, 1,500 plus tactical and strategic nuclear weapons. And um, it is the only country in the world that can deliver an intercontinental ballistic missile with a, a nuclear warhead to, you know, New York, Washington, San Francisco, uh, Los Angeles in under 30 minutes. Right. We can do it to them and they can do it to us. China cannot do that. Russia is also one of the two biggest oil exporters in the world. It's one of the biggest exporters in the world, also of one of the two biggest of natural gas. Um, that gives it leverage because that's a very valuable commodity still in the, the international system. But it also gives it leverage over the way those valuable commodities move around the world. So that's pipelines, um, either ownership of many pipelines, even through the Middle East, um, the pipelines we know that are going into Europe, not just Nord Stream 2, which wasn't even finished, that big gas pipeline everyone talks about that goes into Germany. And, you know, as long as those commodities are, are valuable and important to the global economy, that gives them another kind of power and, and, and leverage. And then beyond that, I mean, they do, although it's not it's not performing quite as we might have anticipated in Ukraine, that's partly because of Ukrainian resistance and also the Russian military hasn't yet really applied the, the full power that it has in Ukraine. Um, it might. Um, and, you know, it looks like they sent the B team in a lot of areas <laughs> rather than the A team um, militarily. But you think there is an A team? Oh, there's an A team. Yeah, it has a very capable military and it, and it could use some of the things that it hasn't used yet, uh, including short range nuclear weapons. Um, which, you know, um, they've changed their nuclear doctrine. So they could use the excuse that there's a, an attack on the homeland and that uh, it's existential if there were, for example, an attack on Crimea, because they consider that peninsula part of Russia, not of Ukraine. And uh, we've seen rhetoric um, from Mr. Putin and from others around him that, you know, you can have a limited nuclear war. So there are lots of ways uh, Russia is a very powerful country. Whether or not it's a superpower depends on what you value the most. It's not an economic superpower, but it's not a basket case either. Uh, it's often portrayed that way until the sanctions. It was actually, you know, it, was, it grew last year. Its economy grew about 4.3%. Its economy is about the size of South Korea's or Canada's, which are developed countries. The GDP per capita of the average Russian is more than twice that of the average Chinese person, which is often forgotten at about $27,000 U.S. in 2021. So a developed country, and, and one of the tragedies here of this conflict is that those gains of the last 30 years 
um, Mr. Putin appears to be willing. And this is Mr. Putin. This is not Russia, right? Uh, this is his decision. It, it wasn't a decision that had to be made over Ukraine, but he appears willing to throw those gains um, to the wind as the economy goes under sanction and is obviously, you know, not going to grow this year, I would bet, despite high oil prices. There's some important points that you make that there's been a lot of rhetoric around like, oh, their economy is tanking and oh, this and that, but they are a fully functioning society and they're among healthy economies uh, as far as to help bring the context back in the midst of all the rhetoric that we hear about what really is the situation. Yeah, it's interesting. You know, Russia has, I think it's a hangover from the Cold War. It's it's um, often frozen in people's minds as the Soviet Union and very sort of gray. And But, you know, this is a country where people like their iPhones. And, you know, it, if you went to Moscow or St. Petersburg or even some of the other large cities, um, Yekaterinburg, for example, um, you would see what looks like a modern European city. Um, and the shame is that this policy toward Ukraine is is going to hold back any further development. And Mr. Putin's autocracy more generally is held back where Russia could be. It's a well-educated society that's globalizing. And so, you know, this is a shame for Russians. It's a tragedy for Ukrainians. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. You brought up the nuclear situation. And in watching the first couple of weeks of this current conflict, when I saw Putin deciding to attack Chernobyl, to attack a nuclear power plant, I thought to myself, oh, that's a loophole, right? Because you can cause a nuclear disaster without dropping a nuclear bomb. Mm -hmm. And I thought, you know, a diabolical loophole, but a loophole nonetheless is like, is that what's going on here? Maybe that's a way into talking about some of the, the tactics and this war crimes question that keeps popping up in, in commentary. I think the decision to take the, and, and Chernobyl is not the only nuclear power plant that, that the Russians have been, have been looking at. Uh, Ukraine has, I think, 20 or 25, maybe, maybe even more than that, um, nuclear power plants. And actually they're um, similar to the Chernobyl model, but we shouldn't fear. I mean, they are, they are safe. And that's actually one of the things Russia exports um, as well is nuclear power plants. They export them to China. They export them to um, to India and into Sub-Saharan Africa as well. So it's actually a way they make money. But why are they taking the Ukrainian power plant? Why are they doing this? Well, to cut off power, right, to cities. And Chernobyl, part of Chernobyl, is unstable because of the accident that happened there in 1985. But other power plants are, are perfectly you know, functional. And it would take a lot, um, is is what I've heard from people who know more about this than I do, to actually, you know, to actually cause a radiation leak. And in fact, they didn't cause uh, a radiation leak. But what they want to do is control power supply, um, and and in this way, get Ukrainian cities to um, to surrender. They haven't managed to do that yet. Um, it is unsettling that, for example, I think right now there's a forest fire burning around Chernobyl, but. Um, I, I, I don't think there's actually, thankfully, any any danger uh, of that using weapons, nuclear weapons that are that have short range. Unfortunately, I think there is a danger of that um, more generally. Um, and that's something maybe to worry about a little bit more. I mean, obviously, if power goes off, if, if somehow the crew's running Chernobyl or Zaporozhye, which is another one of their big nuclear plants, 
you know, you have to hope the technicians are on the ball there. But the IAEA seems to think that that that's that part is going all right. So the nuclear power plants are about power. There's a small chance of a disaster, but we feel like things are under control in that regard or things are safe in that regard. Yeah, I yeah, I don't think it's I mean, that's not in the Russian interest either. Did I hear you right when you said you think there's actually a chance that Putin will act on this doctrine he's espousing about limited nuclear war? Yeah. And again, it's not his, right? It is actually in their uh, national security doctrine. And this this was a change from the last couple of years that some interpret as them saying, and it was repeated actually recently by his spokesman, Peskov, that yeah, an attack on the homeland, if it was viewed as existential, then we would use nuclear weapons. Um, and that is written into their uh, national security doctrine that uh, was added about three years ago. Uh, they used to have a no first use policy, which is that we would only respond, uh, that is Russia would only respond if they were hit first, but uh, they, they changed that. They have small nuclear weapons, um, and it's smaller than Hiroshima. Obviously, they have some that are, you know, 30 times the size of Hiroshima or, or even more. But the worrisome thing is, is that there is rhetoric that A, we would use them and B, that they would be limited in, in terms of, of their damage. Wow. So as an expert in this area, how I, I wanted to ask how worried are you, but I don't want to put words in with <laughs> how uh, how are you contextualizing all of that? Or what are your thoughts about that? Well, it's very worrisome um, because in the Soviet period, during the Cold War, they were a predictable enemy in, in some respects. And we had mutually assured destruction and you know lines of communication. And if mutually assured destruction that is where, you know, if you fire a nuclear weapon at us, we'll fire one at you. Well, no one really thought, well, we did think somewhat about shorter range nuclear weapons. And we've had treaties trying to limit the number of them. But um, we haven't actually thought seriously in a long time that someone would use a nuclear weapon. And it wasn't thought of in this short range context, per se, that it would actually be lobbed at Ukraine. So Ukraine's close enough to Russia that you have to hope that they would worry a little bit about their own people, too, depending on where they lobbed um, a weapon like that, um, because, they're, you know, the wind and the water and stuff are, are close enough. That would affect parts of Russia as well, um, perhaps, depending on what they used. But so bottom line, yeah, I'm worried about that. <laughs> I didn't worry about that 10 years ago, 15 years ago. I'm worried about, a little worried about that now. Yes, to be sure. You're listening to News in Context. I'm Gina Valeria. We're talking with political scientist Dr. Catherine Stoner about Putin's version of the world order and NATO's response to his invasion of Ukraine so far. I teach journalism and I came up in my journalism class two weeks ago. My students brought it up and I said, I thought that when I was a kid. You know, the eight, I was a kid in the 80s and yeah. I was like, I never thought I'd that would ever happen. Right. So, you know, Putin is less... Uh, his regime is less predictable, and that's a big difference from from the communist regime that collapsed in in 1991. Is that there were institutions, right? There was a communist party, there was a Politburo. They even kicked out Khrushchev, remember, in in uh, the 1960s. Even Gorbachev, there was a you know an attempted coup against him by his own Politburo. There isn't that sort of institutional break on the Russian presidency anymore and especially this president. Uh, so there's no one to say it's become an increasingly personalized uh, presidency in a small group. There's not an institutional check really to say 
in the parliament anymore either because they've they've hollowed out that check on the executive power over the years to say you know no we're not going to do this or we're not going to give you the authority to go to war and and, and that's very problematic and where domestic politics, you know, links up with foreign policy, it, it really matters that Russia's this kind of autocracy. So that brings me into the response side of things. And I feel like I feel this way and the people I've talked to feel this way. It is, I I feel helpless, obviously. And I think a lot of people feel that way. And, and, and then it feels as if like, is our response adequate? Mm-hmm. And watching the Ukrainians suffer this way is so hard. And I acknowledge, and I think it's important to acknowledge, that we're not seeing Yemen on TV every day, and we're not seeing other parts of the world on TV every day experiencing similar things. And I feel heartbroken for those people as well. So one, I would love to ask you about the response that has happened, the US response, the NATO response. Oh, there's one other piece. I saw a survey recently, and it was a Pew survey, or no, it was a series of surveys. And they were saying that Americans are largely so far in approval of the response, bipartisan. However, the responder, Biden, they're still not mm-hmm. thrilled with, you know, the, the, his approval ratings are still low. So there's that domestic disconnect. Mm-hmm. But there's also this feeling of we want to stop this guy, I think, among a lot of people. There are other people who are like, it's not our business. Within the U.S., yeah. Yeah. What are your thoughts about our response so far and how it's how it's unfolded? So the, the American response, um, I think it's been good. It could be stronger. But, you know, there is because this is a, a, a nuclear armed state, there is a lot of anxiety around directly fighting uh, the Russian military and, and fear of uh, an unpredictable adversary who might just launch a a nuclear weapon. Now, we don't, you know, the chances of that, I I don't think anyone could really give you, but we're we're pretty sure that wouldn't happen. Um, But President Biden is unwilling to risk that and therefore unwilling to actually put um, U.S. soldiers on the ground and, quote unquote, save Ukraine. And that part, I think, uh, is understood by most Ukrainians. However, What's not understood is is why we wouldn't maybe put American pilots in the air. What Zelensky keeps calling for is a no-fly zone, and pretty much every Ukrainian friend and colleague I talk to in Ukraine is saying, you know, we need a no-fly zone. We need we need you to establish this. I could see us eventually getting to that, possibly with NATO, but not the U.S. on its own. You know, ideally, we would make sure that. Ukraine had the planes it needed. And there was discussion of that and then a a deal with Poland that fell apart for reasons we can talk about if you're interested. But, you know, that would be one way to provide a stronger response. And we've given a lot in aid, um, humanitarian aid, money, um, several different packages, billions of dollars. And of course, we're selling, you know, weapons uh, to the Ukrainians. We have been and you might remember that's why uh, the second impeachment of, of Donald Trump, that quote unquote, perfect phone call that wasn't so perfect <laughs> was about that. Uh, right. He was going to withhold. He was withholding the javelins until Mr. Zelensky, who's now the darling of, of the liberal world order, um, initiated an investigation into Hunter Biden. So folks might want to remember that's who it was and that's what it was about, uh, which makes it even more morally reprehensible now that we see what's happening to Ukrainians uh, on the ground. The other thing I think we could do more of, and and we really haven't started, is, you know, there are now more than 3 million people, uh, some, you know, 
the number every time I check and I check two or three times a day, the number seems to go up by 100,000 or 200,000. So maybe even higher than that, maybe heading toward 4 million because some have been moved to Russia and, and some wanted to go to Russia, but not all, of course, but uh, that's only a few hundred thousand. But, you know, millions who are flooding into Europe and the Europeans have been excellent about taking uh, Ukrainian refugees, in particular, you know, Poland, um, Romania, uh, Moldova, which is not a member of the European Union. The areas around Ukraine have been really, really great about this and people even having refugees in their homes. We have not accepted any refugees here yet into the United States, and it doesn't look like we're going to um, soon. So we really, I think we have to fix that. That's a huge thing we need to do, right? Um, I, I'm sure the Canadians will do it shortly. Um, the British are doing it. Um, Germany will do it. Uh, France, we are not doing it. Unfortunately for the Ukrainian people, it's early days in this. I, I know it doesn't feel that way, um, but um, you know this is unfortunately likely to go on for for months, and I think part of the pause is to see, well, maybe you don't want to settle thousands of miles away. You want to stay closer in Europe because you can go back. And right now we we are seeing a little uh, you know, pushback around Kiev, uh, like you're being where, where people had left. Now it looks like um, it looks like the Ukrainian military controls that area again. So people might be interested in, you know, going back. Because uh, when you're a refugee, you don't want to be a refugee, right? You want to go home. Right, you want to be home. Exactly. But, you know, the U.S. should prepare um, for that. And, you know, we're not hearing too much uh, yet uh, about helping people that way. I have a, a few follow-up questions. Um, you said earlier the U.S. response could be stronger. Yeah. How could it be stronger? Or do you think there's anything else we should be doing? I think we could, you know, in, in time start thinking about whether or not NATO would put their pilots in the air, whether, um, you know, there are more sanctions uh, that we could place on the Russian economy. You know, we don't actually, we sanctioned oil and gas sales here in the United States. We don't actually buy very much oil and gas from those guys um, because the U.S. is a big oil producer, but we consume most of what we produce. But it's a big deal for the Europeans to to sanction that. And now they are stepping toward that. And, And, you know, that's a big sacrifice on their part. Um, but there are other things we can still do within Russia in terms of sanctioning people. We haven't done that. Uh, you know, we haven't gotten as far as we, as far as we could in their activity. I think we have done a great job of working with partners, and I think this was a surprise uh, on the Russian side. Um, their decision makers, I think, were hoping that NATO would not be so collaborative. Um, and you know, the strength of NATO, the strength of the EU, is only in their unanimity. And so far, that's been maintained, and that's huge, and was definitely something Mr. Putin has worked over the last 15 years in particular to try to break apart, but we're hanging together, uh, which I think has been remarkable. Hopefully, that will keep up. And with the question of the no-fly zone, and this is absolutely where this would, as you as you indicated, this would be a NATO response, not a U.S. response. I find myself comparing this to the other big historical moment that Westerners are aware of, which is World War II and Hitler and walking into different countries. So then I get this sense of, well, it's got to be now or later. I mean, it's got to be at some point, right, that we're going to have to do a no-fly zone because I can't see Mm. Putin stopping here. There are lots of former Russian lands that I think he'd like to have. 
Um, and all indicator other experts have said that. So, so then there's that now or later question for me. And do you have any response to the now or later question? Um, how much tragedy do we have to watch? How much damage do we have to see right. done? Uh, or should we be waiting? Well, unfortunately, we Americans tend to be quite insular, right? So unless it's hitting here some way, we tend to, you know, express our moral outrage, but that doesn't always turn into policy. So what would be the threshold? Well, there aren't a lot of Russian per se lands, but there are potentially old Soviet republics that Russia has definitely been interested in. And in particular, I want to say Russia under Putin, because uh, I think a different leader would, would pursue Russian national interests in a, in a different way. There's nothing that says that you have to, in order to you know, bring Ukraine closer uh, to Russia, that you have to, uh, have to bomb it into oblivion. And there have been ways in which um, uh, the Russian state and Russian commercial interests, um, you know, control the politics of other post-Soviet republics. So think about Armenia, Azerbaijan, Central Asia. Um, those are all much closer politically and, and, you know, they don't need to be invaded um, for Russia to control them. They have lots of, there are lots of financial ties. There are kind of legacy um, infrastructure, right, with oil and gas and whatnot. And, and so Russia has a lot of leverage, but they also have um, a trading association that they're part of. And Mr. Putin would like Ukraine to have joined that, not the EU. So in fact, this isn't about NATO at all, because Ukraine was not about to join NATO. It wasn't on the table, wasn't being discussed. Um, it, was, um, it wasn't in 2014 when the Russians uh, seized Crimea. This is about Ukraine wanting to be a democracy. And seeing its future in Western Europe instead of with Russia and Central Asia and Armenia and Azerbaijan. And Georgia, that was the same story in, in 2008. There was a, an invasion and there's still an occupation in a frozen conflict there as well. Moldova, Ukraine and Georgia and the three Baltic republics of Lithuania, Latvia and Estonia, they're all westward leading nations. That is, they want to have closer ties to the European Union. They're on the border uh, of Russia. And so those are places that could have a demonstration effect on Russians um, who might also want to be and remain well integrated with the rest of the world um, and, you know, possibly be interested in, in a robust liberal democracy. And to have Ukraine demonstrate that, it's a familiar culture, right? And so that example of a robust democracy that was trading with the EU, intolerable to an autocrat uh, like Putin. The Baltic republics are all, you know, if this was about NATO, the Baltic republics are all members of NATO. I mean, NATO sits 400 kilometers less, 300 kilometers from St. Petersburg currently. Um, so it wasn't about NATO. And Ukraine's already offered to give up, you know, the, the idea of joining NATO. And this hasn't stopped the war. So that's as good as good proof as you need on that. It's about democracy. Thank you to my guest, Dr. Catherine Stoner, Mossbacher Director of the Center on Democracy, Development and the Rule of Law, Senior Fellow at the Freeman Spogli Institute for International Studies, Political Scientist at Stanford, and Senior Fellow by Courtesy at the Hoover Institution. Stoner is also the author of Russia Resurrected, Its Power and Purpose in a New Global Order. This has been part one of my interview with Dr. Stoner. 
Part two will air next week. There are lots of possible reasons why now that are connected with with Putin and his circle. It's not Trump per se. Um, it is the division and polarization within American politics that manifested in Trump uh, in the election of Trump. When you view the world in terms of blocks and great powers that control other countries, it is beyond his mindset to think that Ukrainian people may actually want democracy and that they are not being manipulated by the West in the United States and Europe divided and distracted. So why not now? Because you listen to News in Context, you might also like another podcast called Civic. Civic is also produced by a local newsroom, the San Francisco Public Press. Civic is a go-to show for understanding how things work in San Francisco or why they don't. Civic talks about what's going on in the city and the Bay Area with everyone from activists to city officials, from researchers to your neighbors. They'll ask the hard questions about everything from housing to public transportation, climate, the pandemic, or homelessness. New episodes come out every Thursday. Music in this episode includes Spring Fling by Track Tribe and The Heist by Silent Partner. In addition to hearing news in context every Friday at 8.30 a.m. and 6.30 p.m. on KSFP 102.5 in San Francisco, you can hear it on Spotify, Stitcher, Apple Podcasts, iHeartMedia, Google Play, Google Podcasts, Podbean, YouTube, and PRX. We're also on Facebook and Twitter at News in Context SF and on Instagram at News in Context. And you can find links to all of that at newsincontext.net. I'm Gina Valeria. Thank you for listening.